Welcome to Renegade Inc. Famously, the broadcaster and natural historian Sir David Attenborough said that someone who believes in infinite growth is either a madman or an economist. One of the big problems we face today is that in our hunt for growth, mainstream economics has been taken over by madmen. But not everyone has fallen for it. Christian Felber, welcome to Renegade Inc. Great to have you on the programme. Thanks for inviting me. Christian, uh, before we get to talk about something that you've given an awful lot of thinking time and work to, which is the economy uh, for the common good, uh, let's do some historical context. Uh, it doesn't take uh, a, a rocket scientist to work out that we uh, human beings have had a very negative effect on our habitat on the planet. Uh, and if you uh, read Jonathan Aldred's work, Licensed to be Bad, uh, tagline How Economics Corrupted Us, he charts very clearly in it, in a couple of years ago, this book was written, he charts in it very clearly how neoliberalism, neoclassical economics has ultimately incentivized us, human beings, which are apparently rational, uh, it's incentivized us to do bad things, not just to the planet, but to one another. What's your view on that? Um, I guess probably the same, because there is a broad um, consensus on the analysis that neoclassical economics, which is the predominant school of um, economic theory, since the late 1817th of the 19th century until today, it became really pressingly dominant only in the 1980s and 1990s, so 100 years later than when it appeared. But um, it is today absolutely dominant. And it is just focusing on the wrong things because it's focusing on financial indicators because uh, they wanted to become as pure scientists as uh, physicists with their mathematical tools. And that's why they kicked out ethics and they kicked out politics and they kicked out ecology or topics such as power concentrations or gender relations. And that was in before. Adam Smith, who is the godfather of macroeconomics, he was not an economist by formation. He was a moral philosopher. And part of his uh, moral philosophy um, teaching was political economy. So politics and uh, economics was one. Ethics was included. Everything was included. And the neoclassical economists, they tried to focus on these financial indicators. And this is separating um, economic science from life, from democracy, from relationships, from everything. And that was just uh, a wrong way to go. And now we are enjoying the inheritance of that great separation. And what we need is a great reunion of economic thinking with life, with democracy, with values, with, uh, with relationships, with everything which makes life worthwhile. To quote Robert Kennedy, already realized uh, the, the, the focus of, uh, of GDP, which is just a tunnel which scarves out everything that uh, makes life worthwhile. Who does economics tell us we are? To make humanity fit into their theories, last century's economists invented rational economic man. He stands alone, with money in his hand, a calculator in his head, ego in his heart and nature at his feet. He hates work, loves luxury, has insatiable wants and knows the price of everything. But the trouble is this, on being told that he is like us, we actually become more like him. Researchers have discovered that the more that economic students study this homo economicus, the more self-interested they become. 
Rational economic man is damaging our societies and the living world. We can no longer afford to gaze at his image, which is why it's time for a new portrait of humanity at the heart of economics. One which recognises that our brains are wired for empathy, cooperation and mutual aid. That instead of being fixed, our wants change as and when our values do. And far from being dominant over nature, we're deeply dependent upon her. With these new beginnings of a self-portrait, how can economics start to nurture human nature and give us a far greater chance of thriving in the 21st century? Jonathan Aldred lectures um, in the Land Management Department at Cambridge University. He's uh, seen firsthand the pernicious effect of uh, neoclassical economics. In the early 1900s, uh, Cambridge University divorced the moral sciences from economics. Uh, that seemingly innocuous act has had massive ramifications, and those ramifications, consequences, are the thing that we are having to deal with now. Just talk about that uh, division. Talk about the divorcing of the moral sciences from economics and what that has meant that we have to deal with now. As you say, in the early 20th century, the first chair of economics uh, was established in England and the United States, for instance, before there was no such thing as pure economics. Before, as already said, there was political economy or economic thinking was part of a bigger branch like ethics or philosophy. Not only Adam Smith, also other classical economists were philosophers by their formation. And if today, uh, students of economics asks, and what about values? And is growth um, morally sound? Then the answer is frequently, you might go and study philosophy <laughs> as if this was something separated. And uh, the history of this great separation was that political economy included ethics and ethical questions by definition. And of course, uh, ethical questions are normative questions and you cannot give a precise answer and there is not one truth. But scientists who want to find one <laughs> undoubtable truth and want to measure a result mathematically precisely, um, they try to push out these ethical questions in a time where um, physics had become the leading science. Uh, physics had become the leading science um, in the times of, of Newton and his contemporary fellows following theology and philosophy. And uh, physics was the leading science because it was mathematically precise. And that's why some social sciences, such as uh, economics, they um, created an envy of being or becoming as mathematically precise as, phys as physicists. And that's why um, um, one branch, and it's only one branch of economics, um, they try to emulate the mathematical behavior of physicists without being more precise, because what these mathematical models calculate is very imprecise. One example is that could not foresee the financial crisis of 2008 because they had forgotten to include banks in their models. So it's a seemingly precise science. It's actually just the disguise of an ideology with a mathematical uh, tools and instruments, which makes them seem as precise as a natural science. That's another point. The neoclassical economists consider their branch as a, as a natural science, although economics is 100% uh, social science. And um, talking about ramification, a ramification comes from branch. And a branch, uh, a discipline of science, um, grows out of a bigger branch and grows out of a tree. 
and what is most important in science is always remembering what is the tree <laughs> where a big branch and then a smaller branch is growing out. And only if the smaller branch of uh, economics, economic science as a social science is still connected with ethics, with democracy, with uh, gender studies, with ecology, only then the results can be meaningful and wise. If the, the branch is, uh, is forgetting about everything else around itself, it becomes uh, super specialized, it becomes uh, sophisticatedly uh, precise, but not meaningful and useful any longer. And it, that was, has happened especially with economics, but not exclusively with economics. And we are talking about pure economics <laughs> or neoclassical economics. This, uh, this title, pure economics, only appeared in the late 19th uh, century. And before, economics was uh, part of something bigger. And this is today also the way to go. It should reintegrate into all of its contexts, into go into connection with all the other branches, and only then it would be a meaningful science. Famously, the Queen over here in the UK asked Professor Louis Garacano at the London School of Economics, why did nobody see this coming just after 2008? Was that a moment, a crystallized moment, uh, which we could say actually that really showed us the hubristic nature of these economists who think they're above it all, they think they're above ecology. Was that a moment where people, where faith was shaken? Uh, Greenspan also said that he was shocked. Was that a moment where faith was shaken so much in this neoclassical thinking that actually people went back to basics? I would say it was a first earthquake, but it did not manage to bring the whole school uh, into collapse because there are more earthquakes. Another earthquake is that uh, Nicholas Stern and his co-author said, uh, looking at the Quarterly Journal of Economics, the most cited scientific journal of economics, uh, if they had published an article on climate change and they, they did not find a single one, <laughs> and that's what they published in 2019, and they apologized for their branch, for their discipline, uh, we made a huge contribution to the mess that we were in because we did not look to the left and to the right. And this is one, one of the big criticisms that it's ignoring the insights and the findings of neighboring disciplines, not only sociology and political science and psychology, but also true natural sciences. For instance, uh, neurobiology, neurobiology, just one small example has found out that cooperation motivates uh, humans more stronger than competition. It's a scientific finding and it has just been ignored. And another one is that every economic value comes out of nature. So we have to include ecology into economics and only ecological economics is a meaningful economics. How can we scarf that out? If we scarf it out and tunnel our focus of attention on the financial indicators, we will destroy the foundations of life. And together with this, we will destroy ultimately every economic value as well. In the 20th century, economics lost its purpose and started chasing the false goal of GDP growth. In recent decades, that has pushed many societies into deepening inequality, and it's pushing us all towards ecological collapse. This century calls for a new goal, meeting the needs of all within the means of the planet. In other words, it's time to get into the donut, the sweet spot for humanity. But that's no easy task. Today, billions of people still fall short of their daily needs, from food, housing and energy to healthcare and education. 
And yet collectively, we've already overshot our pressure on some of Earth's most critical life support systems, driving climate change and the breakdown of biodiversity. What we do to this Earth in the next 50 years will shape the next 10,000. So let's replace that last century goal of endless growth with the goal of thriving in balance. And if we're to have half a chance of getting there, what economic mindset would be fit for the task? Very interestingly, I did not find even a definition of economy in economic textbooks. And that's more than interesting because the, the only definition that is offered is a definition of markets. But markets are not the whole economy. So before I investigate markets, I would like to know the definition, what is the economy? And if, for example, the economy is about satisfying human needs and maybe basic human needs, then it includes breastfeeding and it includes um, leisure time in nature and swimming in rivers and growing your own fruits in your garden and collaborating with neighbors and feeling social security and feeling community, for instance. These are all basic needs but they are not satisfied via markets. So first of all, uh, we start with a, a definition of economy. What is the definition of economy? The second step is, which are the goals of economy? <laughs> and then uh, here comes already the common good uh, economy into play and the common good product. Um, our proposal is that the goal of the economy should be defined democratically by the affected people, by the citizens. And if we ask them what is most relevant, most important for a good life for everybody, for the highest possible life quality and well-being, for the common good, then everywhere in, on the planet, people answer, well, it's of course health, it's happiness, it's flourishing relationships, it's uh, stable nature and ecosystems, it's political participation and fundamental rights, it's peace, and it's just distribution and social cohesion. And that would be the goal of the economy. Why would we measure uh, the success of our economy with financial indicators or financial aggregates, such as the GDP, which has no reliable relationship to any of these true values, which have just uh, uh, as examples enumerated, but uh, they are what life is about. Christian Felber, welcome back to Renegading. In that first half, what we did was we gave a bit of historical context. You put a lot of flesh on the bone to talk about neoliberalism and why uh, we have uh, gone down the wrong path and gone so hard down the wrong path, ultimately giving financial indicators uh, to try uh, and give insights into the economy when we haven't actually asked what the economy is there to do, nor have we defined the goals. People listening to this uh, will be in full agreement with um, the way you've defined the economy, the economic goals, and then trying to manifest an economy which is for the common good and, and the, the numerics that depict that, the, the measures, the metrics. When you talk about um, the economy for the common good as a model, what you talk about is human dignity, solidarity, social justice, environmental sustainability, transparency, co-determination. None of those things I ever, ever hear whenever we talk in the political class, in the media, corporate, mainstream media, uh, or from think tanks, these are not words that are even, in, even near their lexicon. 
How do you begin to start turning people's cognitive map to start including these so you can push towards the goal that you want, which is an economy that serves people and planet? Um, alerting them the contradiction that uh, the values that are propagated in economics textbooks are not only completely different from the values that are enshrined in our democratic constitutions, because in our democratic constitutions, the most frequently enshrined values are the ones you just enumerated, dignity, solidarity, justice, sustainability, and democracy. These are the most frequent fundamental democratic values in um, nowadays constitutions. And if you compare these uh, fundamental democratic values with the values that are propagated in economic education, it has, this has been investigated in its utility maximization, its competition orientation, its pursuit of financial goals first and foremost, materialism and unlimited growth. Uh, so there is nothing in common between these value systems in our democratic constitution and economics textbooks, interestingly enough. And now comes a series of very um, tricky problems. First problem is uh, neoclassical economists, uh, as regarding themselves as natural scientists, they would not admit that these are their values that they propagate because they think that their values are superior to the constitutional values, they would answer, uh, we don't have values, we are value free, we are objective, positivistic, natural scientists. So it's, uh, it's, not it's simply not true that economics is a normative science the way we teach it. So it's an illusion, it's a self-illusion, and it's actually a manipulation which is um, happening in economic education. That's one problem. The second problem is it in some constitutions, like the German one, it says very clearly already in Article 5, so it's extremely um, high up in the constitution, it says that the freedom of science that does not free you from loyalty to the constitution. Just explain that. Science is free, and I'm a scientist, I'm for the freedom of science, of course, but what I cannot not do at the university, I cannot uh, teach how to kill perfectly people because this is against the constitutional value of human dignity and against fundamental right. There, my scientific freedom is restricted. And it's good and it's, <laughs> it's, it's reasonable that it's restricted. But what, would it, what do we do about the fact that there are constitutional values on the one hand, from human dignity to sustainability, and then the value system that is propagated by economic education is not only complementary, but opposed because endless growth is opposed to sustainability and competition orientation is opposed to solidarity and utility maximization is opposed to human dignity. So what are we actually going to do about that? And my, my historical answer to that is to not allow economists who teach these value systems call themselves economists because it was already Aristotle who differentiated oikonomia the original term which, give, which gives the name, uh, from its opposite, chrematistiki, in his times that meant the, the art of making money and enrich oneself with material values. And he said that's the opposite, because in an economy, the common good is the goal and money is just a means. And if this flips upside down, if making money becomes the goal, this is not economy anymore, this is chrematistiki, or today we call it capitalism, and actually, we should force all economists that put their attention and their teaching on financial indicators first and foremost 
we, we should force them to, to name themselves um, capitalists, but non-economists, non because it's the opposite of economics what uh, they are teaching. And this is the minimum standard of protecting our, our constitutions and the values that are enshrined in these constitutions. And the second step, and maybe this is the analytical part, and now maybe the, the more important part, well, is to develop an understanding and a concept of economy which is aligned with our constitutions. And this is the short answer for the economy for the common good. Economy for the common good is nothing new. There are constitutions that say literally the whole economic activity in its entirety serves the common good. This is, for instance, a literal saying of the Bavarian uh, constitution. And uh, what our proposal is to align the activities of the economy as a whole with the common good product of companies on the meso level and of finance on the micro level with these fundamental democratic values and asking every company, what are you doing to promote human dignity, solidarity, justice, sustainability, democracy, and every single investment that would be a common good balance sheet for a company and every single investment before checking the financial viability of that investment and making the financial risk assessment of that investment, we would do the ethical risk assessment. And uh, we would ask, uh, what is the impact of that investment on the environment, on biodiversity, on social cohesion, on human dignity, on democracy? And only if none of these fundamental values is damaged, we call it externalities <laughs> in neoclassical economics, only if none of these fundamental values is damaged and only if none of our common goods is expropriated, only then we do the financial risk assessment as well on a secondary stage. And if both exams are passed, uh, the investment can be realized and it can be financed because then we have assured that it's a truly economic development and not a crematistic or capitalistic development and nothing of our holy values will be damaged uh, with this type of practicing the economy. Seems to me that what you're doing uh, within your work is making the distinction, and you're commenting on it beautifully now, you're making the distinction between natural law uh, and, and a legal process that we human beings have dreamt up. Uh, and what you're saying is when an investment needs to take place in uh, the economy for the common good, we look hard at natural laws and are guided by those natural laws, not dissimilar to the Constitution in a lot of places. When we start looking at the man-made laws, uh, well, back to Mr. Jonathan Aldred, we are incentivized uh, to be bad. We are licensed to be bad. Is that a fair depiction? Yes, it is, because scientific evidence is uh, just contrary. But maybe allow me to do um, one, one uh, short remark on natural laws and man-made laws, uh, because the ancient Greeks, they distinguished one from the other. And the natural laws of a science, they were expressed with logos. And the science oikos and logos exists. It is a natural science, but it has nothing to do with economics. It's ecology, and it tries to understand the natural laws thanks to which nature works and functions. That's a natural science. Whereas economy, oikos, nomos, the nomoi, these are the man-made laws because it's not a natural science. It has nothing to do with natural phenomena. Markets, enterprises, property, money. These are not natural phenomena. It's not about the natural science. It's a social science. And that's why the laws, thanks to which we order, uh, we order the house, the oikos, or we manage the house, 
are moral rules. Keynes said economics is essentially a moral science. And why is it a moral science? Because we want to achieve a specific goal. We want to achieve the goal of the well-being of all household members, of all members of the national economy. So it's essentially a moral science. Keynes knew it and Adam Smith said it and Aristotle said it, just new classical economics. Economists deny it and uh, seem to have forgotten it, but they haven't forgotten it because they have to know it. They're just repressing it. And it's a manipulation. You cannot say it's a forgetting. It's a manipulation. It's an ideology disguised in a natural science. Um, when we talk about the environment and climate breakdown, a lot of people just think it's too big and it's somewhere over there in the future and it doesn't affect them. When you start talking about drastically reducing inequality and people's personal sovereignty so they can really truly express themselves. People come alive a lot quicker because they want that freedom. They want to have the collaborative relationships. They want to have the good society. They want to express themselves, have meaning, have purpose. As we wind up, with the economy uh, for the common good, what are you saying to voters, to the public, to people watching this? What are you saying to them to get them involved in pushing for this economy and getting rid of this unnatural, consumption-driven, frankly, lunacy that we have at the moment? Well, very simply, you, you will have a better life. You will have a better life um, having relationships which you can rely upon. Uh, you can trust everybody. You will uh, uh, have the feeling of security in the economy, in society. You will be able to enjoy nature. You don't have to buy um, long-term journeys because the river next to your house will be drinkable and you can swim in, in, in this river. You will have always some seasonable fruits from your own garden or from your neighbor's garden or from your community gardening, which, um, which uh, probably makes you even happy. And um, most of all, you will have less stress, less anxiety and less fear. And uh, all of this increases life quality. And uh, this will be the offer of an economy which is not focused on the optimization or maximization of financial indicators, GDP, profit, and uh, return of investment, but where all activities focus on the increase and, and the improvement of the common good. Christian Felber, you uh, seem to me a man who's on the right side of history. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you once again for inviting me.